The creators at Grounded believe that brewing great coffee shouldn't be a shot in the dark, and we couldn't agree more. Use the coupon code The Coffee Podcast for 10% off Grounded at groundedcoffeebook.com. Our friends at Map It Forward are hosting two events we think you might be interested in how to map a successful career as a barista, and how to map a successful career in business as a coffee roaster. Use the coupon code The Coffee Podcast for 10% off your ticket. Remember, you can attend virtually. The following conversation is a living continuum that includes every link of the coffee value chain from before the seed to after the cup. I'm Jesse Hartman, and this is The Coffee Podcast. When starting a roasting operation, it can be difficult to know where to start. Thankfully, we have a few guests on our show who can really help us figure that out. Before we jump into this episode, I want to say that I normally ask a guest about their background and their history in coffee, but I didn't want to do something that's already been done well. Our friend Chris DeFerro over at Keys to the Shop has already done an episode introducing Rob Hoos on his episode 63, What Your Roaster Wants You to Know with Rob Hoos. Be sure to check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes. To start this episode off, I asked Rob... How many roasts do you think you've done? It's quite a few. I can uh, pull up my calculator real quick here and yeah. uh, get you a general number. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, so let's say, you know, typically speaking, doing when I was doing production roasting a lot especially, so probably, you know, be 20 batches a day times five days a week times 52 weeks a year, so about 5,200 batches per year times let's say I've been roasting for longer, but let's just say 10 years, just to make it easy. So yeah, it's probably been 52,000 batches or more would be my <laughs> guess. Uh, yeah. So that's about 52,000 more than I've ever done. Uh, not counting my popcorn popper experience. <laughs> so I uh, just want you to know that just for comparison's sake. How many roasters have you worked with? Is there a particular roaster that you've worked with the most or have you kind of tried a few different ones? I mean, I've gotten to work with pretty much all of the major ones that are easily available in the U.S. So I've roasted on, you know, Ambex, U.S. Roaster Core, San Franciscan, Loring, Probat, Diedrich, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so gotten to spend a fair bit of time on all those, uh, you know, helped people that work with civets and stuff like that as well. So, awesome. uh, but uh, the, the bread and butter for Nosa Familia Coffee, which is the coffee roaster I work at in Portland, Oregon, and I've been working here for the last six years, uh, we're primarily on Loring machines. So I would say, uh, the most recent production roasting experience has primarily been on Loring. Got you. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important for our listeners to understand that your experience goes beyond um, just a typical roasting setting where, you know, you may have been roasting for five years, but just on one machine. I think it's important to to show that when you talk about the topic that you have experience on multiple machines because, mm-hmm. you know, the the sort of philosophy behind roasting is uh, I believe is greatly affected by um, that variable, right? It, just being on one roaster versus another. And so uh, it clears it up, I think, when you have experience on multiple roasters to be able to say, this is how coffee reacts from an experiential uh, perspective. Um, Absolutely. It, give, it gives you a little bit more of a global perspective on on how coffee actually functions and kind of opens up your, your worldview in terms of coffee roasting, I guess. Kind of like you know, how travel does for people in general on like if people have the opportunity to travel it often opens up their their experience a bit and helps them understand the world in a little bit bigger context right on yeah same sort of thing 
let's pretend for a moment that I'm starting a small scale roasting operation. I don't know what I'm doing, right? I, I am like, I like coffee. I, I love the coffee shop down the street. Um, I know that I like this third wave coffee thing that's happening. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of where I am. I have the finances, but I don't have like crazy investment money. So mm-hmm. small scale operation, um, limited funds, want to start an operation. Do I start buying equipment? Where would you start in this in this scenario? I have the, the luxury in terms of answering this question of having helped a lot of people open up cafes, uh, or roasteries specifically, um, more so even than cafes. So the first thing I would say is if you have the ability to, you should probably go and work as a production roaster somewhere else first and kind of get your feet wet. Gotcha. Um, because the coffee roasting side is a bit challenging. And on the wholesale side, there's a lot of competition in most, uh, most areas. And you're spending a lot of money in terms of your upfront investment, in terms of buying capital equipment, getting a space uh, that's large enough for you to do that, buying coffee, uh, which can be a bit of an investment as well. And so some people may find that they don't even like doing it. So it's probably better if you have the opportunity to get your feet wet first, work for a couple different roasteries, um, that sort of thing. Uh, but if, if that isn't a luxury you have and you just kind of want to start on your own, uh, whether it's, you know, there's nowhere nearby that you want to get started or you know, your family or, or you particularly are really happily located in a certain area and you just want to start up your own business there, um, give a, a bit of a different perspective. So the first thing I would say is start with a roasting machine that's going to be large enough based on your business projections to free you up most of the week to do sales, marketing, demos, um, you know, working with potential customers and clients, uh, that sort of thing. I think a lot of times people will buy a roaster that's frequently a little bit too small Mm -hmm. because they figure, okay, well, I can roast four or five days a week. Um, But the problem quickly becomes if you're roasting four or five days a week, who's running the rest of the business functions? Right. Uh, So... I would say, you know, anything below a five kilo roaster is way too small to start anything. Um, I would start with a five kilo at minimum and probably even a, a, you know, 10, 15 kilo machine to start with. Um, That way you're not spending all of your time behind the roaster. You can just spend a day or so roasting, uh, two days roasting, what have you. And you'll be able to fill all of your online orders as well as all your wholesale orders or orders for your cafes. And then you can spend the rest of your time. Uh, doing the things that actually help sell the coffee and make the business run. Uh, so that would be like my first big thing. Awesome. So the assumption here too is that, you know, you're not just production roasting, you are wearing a bunch of hats, right? Because, and that would make sense. Maybe that's not something people think about is, you know, you can't just roast coffee and just hope it somebody walks in and buys it. You have to, you know, you have to dress it up and sell it and got to get the hustle on. And get the hustle yeah. on. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, got to. You have to bag the coffee as well. Typically, I mean, for a lot of people when they first start out, they they can't bring on a large staff, and so oftentimes they or they and one other person are doing the roasting, packaging, sales, um, order fulfillment, etc. So gotcha. yeah, making sure that you are opening yourself up and giving yourself as much time is is hugely valuable. So Rob, there's a there's a lot of equipment that you can buy to help you with your production roasting, mm-hmm. right? Um, what are what are sort of the key uh, equipment pieces that I'm going to need? I, I know that you can buy a bagger and you can buy 
uh, I, I don't know, tools to help you sort of quickly bag and seal your coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think are kind of the core, like like the very minimum basic items that you would need in your production project? Absolutely. So uh, the first, because this is a legal requirement, is you need a legal for trades or a, a trade scale, a certified trade scale. Um, basically, what will happen is the departments of weight and measures will come around and check to make sure that you, as a wholesaler, have a trade scale so that you can verify that the amount of coffee you're putting in each bag is accurate. Um, and so they will come by and actually test your scales, make sure they're calibrated, that sort of thing. The assumption is if you have a legal for trade scale, then you are using that legal for trade scale to test all of your other equipment. So even if you end up buying a weigh and fill uh, machine or a bagging machine or something like that, you'll be using the legal for trade scale to verify. So okay. you don't necessarily have to use it, but it needs to be present in your shop. And these are going to be a couple hundred dollars. Um, other pieces of equipment that are absolutely essential in my mind would be uh, the, the little uh, black coffee scoops where it's got the scoop on one hand and then it's got basically a, a cylindrical hole on the other side that you could use to dump directly into the coffee bag. So those scoops are really, really crucial because you know, otherwise you're scooping a little bit here and there at a time or finding some other way to do it where these just fill the bags really, really easily. Uh, other equipment that would be highly recommended would be bag formers. Uh, bag formers are going to be basically these little uh, studs, sometimes with a little, uh, like a kind of a blunt uh, end to them that you okay. use to actually force the coffee bags over to open them because it is not food safe for you to stick your hand in the coffee bag to open it. Right. Um, so, you know, having that there is going to make the department or the health department or the FDA, depending on what you fall under, uh, quite a bit happier than if you are trying to open them by hand. I see. Yeah. Uh, and in addition, a lot of times the bags, depending on what type of bag that you get, uh, are not going to open easily just under the weight of the coffee. Mm-hmm. So having a bag former is going to be pretty essential as well. Um, depending on what whether or not you're offering it uh, ground coffee, uh, you want some sort of production grinder. You know, there's a lot of different production grinders that are out there. Just finding one that works well for you and your needs, both in terms of your financial needs as well as uh, hitting the different grinds that you're looking to hit mm-hmm. for your, your wholesale or your retail coffee. Um, and then something that if you can would double for not only doing that, but also to do your cupping with kind of leads us to the other thing for your, for your lab. Some things that are just absolutely essential are going to be cupping bowls, cupping spoons, water filtration, uh, to make sure that you are filtering out chlorine from your water or anything that's going to be unpleasant mm-hmm. and putting yourself really on the same level as the people you're trying to do wholesale with in terms of the type of water that they're using right. or your cafes or that sort of thing. Whether that means remineralizing back to SCA spec or just using local water but filtering it uh, is kind of up to you and your business model. Um, but those are some things that are incredibly uh, important to think about. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and then obviously buckets for green coffee, buckets for roasted coffee. Um, usually we're talking about uh, food-safe buckets uh, in all of those situations. So finding ones right. that are actually meant to use for food is going to be important. Yeah, and then uh, most bags, especially with new FISMA regulations, should probably be heat sealed. Uh, so you do need some form of heat sealer, whether it's a hand-operated heat sealer or foot pedal operated, which is going to uh, mm-hmm. save you a lot of stress in the long run, having a, a foot operated heat sealer. Okay. Um, the impulse sealers tend to work better than just the ones that are kept constantly hot. So I would look at an impulse sealer. 
so these these are sort of the core elements, right? So I I think uh, for anybody who's listening who is thinking like, oh yeah, I'm just going to jump right into this. This this should sort of raise some like, oh, I'm going to need to buy quite a few things, right? Oh yeah, um, just to yeah. Get I mean, e- equipment wise, you're probably looking at easily twenty to thirty thousand dollars, if not more, to get a small roasting operation started. So wow. okay, yeah, yeah, that's super helpful. So, you know, you, you could break the bank on, on some things to help you uh, with your roasting operation right off the bat. But Rob, what are some things you don't think that you would need? The shiny things you might see in, in a uh, well-established roasting operation that, you know, somebody in my shoes might go, oh, yeah, I need that. But you actually don't at the very beginning. One piece of equipment I would recommend is going to be a refractometer uh, to measure the brewed coffee with. What we often don't think, and I know this is the opposite to the answer to your question, but I'm going to kind of trail on from that to then give you the the series, the sequence in which I would actually buy pieces of equipment. Okay, yeah. Um, because some of it's definitely not necessary when you first start, but I, I would say having a refractometer is absolutely necessary because as the roaster, not only are you going to be testing um, the brewed coffee to make sure that you're getting proper extraction, and you know you can then give recommendations to people who would be using your coffee as to how they should be brewing it, helping dial in their brewers, helping dial in their espresso equipment to make sure that you're following recipes that give you a proper soluble yield from the coffee. So I'd say the refractometer is the first and most important piece of actual like lab equipment that seems extraneous that you should actually get. Okay. All right. You, you don't necessarily need to start with a color monitor enabled and in, in, you know in order to actually check the whole bean and ground color of the coffee in many circumstances as long as the profile is correct and you're hitting the same end temperature your thermocouples are accurate enough to get you quite ballpark in terms of having a consistent product i see so if you're if you're measuring not only the solubility of the coffee but if you're measuring weight loss you're making sure profile timing is correct uh, and your weight loss is correct and for the most part, you're probably relatively certain that you've hit profile and that the coffee shouldn't taste any different. And then obviously doing QAQC testing uh, in terms of cupping the coffees and making sure everything tastes fine. Uh, so then I would say you know, the refractometer is the very first thing that you should get. Following that, I would look into actually acquiring a color monitoring system of some kind that you can use okay. to test your whole bean and ground color coming off the roast. This is just another way of checking your consistency, which I think is going to be incredibly important. Right. Um, and then looking at the delta between your whole bean and ground coffee, it should be a, a similar delta. Or the difference between the whole bean and ground coffee should be a similar difference, which is just a calculation done off those two values. Gotcha. Then once you've kind of gotten that, you know, and you're financially able to acquire more equipment, the next thing I would look at getting would actually be a, a moisture meter. Okay. For most people that start off buying green coffee, the importers are tracking all of this for you. And so it's not as crucial for you to have a moisture meter until much later in the game. If you start doing direct trade or if you're working directly with producers in a different country, that's kind of where it really starts to become important to have some sort of moisture meter to be able to check the actual moisture content mm-hmm. of the coffee. Uh, but otherwise, it's not all that crucial. But having one to verify that the storage conditions are, are okay and that the coffee's aging properly is going to be nice as you grow as a roastery. I see. And then the very last thing that I think anybody who's roasting should get at the moment, simply because we're not completely sure what to do with it yet, uh, would be a a water activity meter, which are quite expensive. They measure basically how willing uh, the coffee is to lose or gain moisture. Hmm. Um, But 
we're still kind of figuring out what exactly to do with that data as an industry. Uh, there's some really interesting and compelling stuff coming out. There's people with very different opinions on either side of it. Um, and so it's just kind of an area of further growth at the moment, but completely not necessary. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that because I know that there's definitely going to be pitfalls for people trying to start these operations and you know buying something they don't need and then not buying something they do need and finding themselves you know, halfway into their operation going, I don't know what I'm doing, right? Yeah. Um, which could be a really scary experience. Um, and, you know, so, so now we know the equipment that we need. How, or rather, um, oh, I'm sorry, we already addressed that. What equipment can be added over time? You actually already jumped mm-hmm. into that. So now that I know what I need, how do I choose a roaster? Do I do I pick the one that's my favorite color? Um, <laughs> do, you know, do do I go? Hey, I really like this roasting company, um, or I really see this one on Instagram the most. Like, how you know, what should I be looking for? So that's a really good question. I would say the first is kind of figuring out which roaster manufacturers offer a roaster in the size that you need, and use that as a way to kind of narrow down the pack. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, while it's important to buy one that's large enough, if you buy one that's overly large and you're doing like two, three batches on it per week because it's just too big, it's going to be really hard for you to monetize that equipment. Hmm. Um, so making sure that you're kind of in the right size range is the first. Um, the second, and, and this is something I harp on all the time, so I am of the opinion that is not completely held within the industry, but we're working on changing that through education and through having people actually experience coffees match side by side. Uh, Roasting machines don't generate flavor. The chemical and physical changes that happen to the coffee over time are what generate the actual flavor of the coffee. Okay, yeah. And so you don't want to pick a roasting machine based on the flavor profile you think it creates either because most roasting machines can create any flavor profile. It's all just depending on how you choose to roast on it. I see. Okay. Um, So that's going to be a very, very important thing for people to realize is that you're not buying it because – you know, the reason I get Roaster X isn't because, oh, Roaster X tastes like this. You know, it's all on how you decide to drive Roaster X to make the coffee taste like that or not. So I wouldn't worry too much about the flavor in terms of what you're picking a Roaster. I would just find one that feels like it has a good, solid build to it. Uh, and then talk to other people in the industry and see who actually does a good job supporting the Roasters. Gotcha. We have a terrible situation in our industry in which most people are either accustomed to or comfortable with the idea that they can buy a large piece of capital equipment from a manufacturer and expect them not to answer the phone, not to return their phone call for weeks at a time, and maybe to be completely unhelpful. Uh, This is changing because people are starting to get fed up with it, but I can remember times in my history of roasting coffee where I would call call a manufacturer with a question and maybe get a response a couple of months later. Oh man, and and you've bought a multi thousand dollar machine, exactly right. These, so, what you want to do is talk to people who own the roasters that you're looking at or looking into, and see who provides good service. If someone doesn't provide good service, in my personal opinion, that's unacceptable. Uh, service is included in the cost of a multi thousand dollar machine, yeah, or should enough. be. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, you know, talk to people who own them and see what they think about not like you know. Sometimes people wax poetic about how a certain coffee tastes because it's on this roast or whatever. Don't don't even worry about that. Just ask them like, hey, have you had any issues? 
How quickly were they able to get your replacement parts? Did they answer the phone when you called? Were they friendly and helpful? Like stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then another thing, and this is a, a, a personal experience bit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a roaster arrive in the past um, when I worked at a different company because the crating that the roaster was in was not well done. There was over $7,000 worth of damage done to the roaster by the trucking company. Oh, no. And we had to actually send it back to the manufacturer and have it repaired and be sent to us. Thankfully, the trucking company obviously footed the bill for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it delayed us by four months or so. Oh, my gosh. You know, if it wasn't just a roaster I was buying for fun to, to you know use for development and play around with, it would have been a different story. Uh, if it had been my main production roaster, delaying me four months would have been absolutely tragic. So make sure that the roasters come well crated. And make sure that when the roaster arrives, you pull the box apart. You don't sign a dang document right. until you actually pull the crate apart and inspect it and make sure that it is in good working order. And if the truck driver gives you crap about it, you just say, well, I'm doing my job, which is making sure that I don't receive damaged equipment signed for it. Because if you don't include the damage on the uh, bill of lading that you're signing, mm-hmm. or, you know, the, basically the paperwork saying that they dropped it off, it becomes much, much harder to fire an insur- file an insurance claim with a trucking company. Yeah. So, man, make what a sure nightmare. You, yeah. Yeah. Make sure you check that stuff out. Uh, so, it's a, a huge issue. But yeah. Pick them based on what you like, what fits the aesthetic that you're working in, in terms of your shop or your production, uh, what has all the bells and whistles that you want, but primarily pick it based on customer service and, and other people's satisfaction with that machine. So, Rob, you know, software is an important part of roasting these days, uh, makes Mm -hmm. repeatability uh, really much more possible than it ever has been in the past. So when it comes to choosing software, I guess the first question is, is it as important as I think it is? Um, And then if it is, how do I choose uh, the roasting software that I should use with my roaster? So I think it's, it's super helpful. I wouldn't say that it is completely the most important thing ever because people have been logging roasts manually for a long time, uh, whether that be on Excel forms or kind of on their own form. But it does give you a much larger gradient in terms of how the roast is breaking down instead of every 30 seconds having a data point or every 15 seconds having a data point. It's literally taking data points every second from the roaster. Mm -hmm. So it it gives you a much more comprehensive look, I guess is what I want to say, into what's happening inside of your machine. Uh, which is super helpful. Um, I would say that you know if if you are working with uh, an open source software, uh, keep in mind that the people that do this open source software sometimes rely on uh, the generosity of people using it in terms of making sure to give donations. So a lot mm-hmm. of times, open source software isn't meant to just be free software. It's just software that you're not charged for. Right. So making sure to hook up and appreciate the people making and maintaining that for you is really important. Um, if it is a paid software, that's awesome too. If it fits in your budget, there's oftentimes a lot more bells and whistles that come along with the paid software, mm-hmm. like inventory management, um, everything being cloud-based, uh, really, really quick, easy data recollection, report generation, all that sort of stuff. And so um, just kind of finding what fits your company and what fits what you want to do. Right. Um, it's kind of like picking a roaster in that way. Just talk to people that use it, figure out what bells and whistles you want, and then kind of go ahead from there. I, I guess uh, a situation could arise, say, on the software front, if you build your entire production 
um, business around your software, you know, I, I could see how that could happen, right? Where you're, you're mm-hmm. so dependent on it. If it goes down, you're in trouble. So maybe, maybe it would be worthwhile to know how to roast without the software, um, yes. as well as with the software. Um, yeah, because I, yeah. I could totally see that happening. You know how software is. It just sometimes just doesn't turn on. Yeah, absolutely true. And so keeping, like we keep a written record of all of our, our roast recipes as well. And so, for example, you know, we've just got like a quick tick list of every single recipe that we do, basically taped on the podium where the computer is. Mm-hmm. And so when, uh, you know, in our particular case, we're running crops through here at Nose. And so if anything ever were to happen, uh, which I wouldn't expect, but if it did, we still have all of the data written down right there on the table and we could continue roasting and know that we're you know, generally matching the profile, no problem. Great. So uh, we used to jokingly call it our roasting Bible because it used to right. be actually in a binder form and we had every single roast written down um, with quite a bit of detail. But yeah, having having information like that readily available to you is, is pretty important, whether that's, you know, you print out your gold profiles or you have a written log, or you have an Excel sheet that just has basic data points. Um, having a little bit of a backup never hurt anybody. So, you know, note-taking is something I've actually heard uh, often on different topics on roasting that we've had so far uh, as being a really critical moment uh, for people. So I want to encourage our listeners again to, to be taking notes. Um, I think that's extremely valuable advice. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, Rob, now we've talked about... Um, you know, the equipment we need, sort of the the software we need, basically everything we need to get done, uh, the actual roasting. Um, mm-hmm. The thing we haven't talked about is how do we use the equipment? And I know that this is a little difficult to do over just audio, um, but that's okay. We're going to do our best um, and we'll mm-hmm. keep it pretty simple. And I'm going to ask this question. What are the steps of roasting in the most basic terms? So pretend we've already purchased the beans and everything and just sort of a step one, step two, step three mm-hmm. kind of process. Absolutely. So step one, preheat your roaster. Um, we rely on a lot of the thermal inertia of the metal to provide kind of the initial kick of heat that we we get from starting to roast. So we're not only preheating the air that's flowing through the roaster, but we're actually preheating the metal as well and relying on that to rapidly accelerate the beans from room temperature, which is what they're dropping in at, uh, up into a chemical reaction point. So preheating is pretty important. And usually we'll do about 45 minutes to an hour preheat uh, before we start roasting. Obviously that depends on roaster size of smaller roasters. You can have a little bit less preheat, mm-hmm. um, but you're going to be doing at least a half an hour preheating. So come in early in the morning, um, make sure that your roaster is completely cleaned, make sure the chaff collector is cleared out. Um, yeah, do all of your basic preventative maintenance steps that you have for your, your checklist from your roaster. Fire it on and let it warm up for about 30 minutes while either you do some QAQC on coffee uh, or maybe hit some emails up or something along those lines. So that would be the first step. Uh, second step is you're going to uh, take your pre-weighed out coffee, you know, green coffee, uh, add it to the hopper, and then you're going to charge it into the drum, which is what we refer to basically as, as dropping the coffee into the roasting drum in order to start the roasting process. So Got it. Okay. You're going to charge your coffee. Depending on the manufacturer that you're using, you may or may not turn the heat up right away. Uh, some roaster manufacturers uh, recommend doing a little bit of a soak period where you just kind of let it absorb the heat from the air and the metal um, before actually adding more heat through the burner. Uh, other roasters, you don't soak at all, and you just drop it in and fire the burner right up. Uh, as you're going through the roasting process, the beans are going to start to lose moisture content. 
Uh, when they lose enough moisture content that the Maillard reactions can start, you'll start to see a yellow coloring start to appear on the beans. That's mm-hmm. just from brown pigmentation from the Maillard reaction uh, starting. You know, it's going to go through that and it's going to build up, build up, build up toward first crack. Um, first crack is basically caused by water vapor pressure uh, inside the cellular structure of the seed. And when the seed can no longer maintain that pressure, it rapidly expands, swells, and cracks, releasing a lot of the water vapor into the environment, uh, which is what we've come to call first crack. Right. Uh, so second crack, which will happen a little bit later on, is going to be due to carbon dioxide pressure. So from pyrolysis, a lot of carbon dioxide is created as a byproduct from those reactions. That's going to build up more pressure inside the cell structure, and eventually it's going to cause it's going to force the cellular transport pores to open a little bit wider, and it's going to release a lot of CO2. Um, so basically, you just go through a series of browning reactions up until whatever the endpoint that you've desired is, based on whatever profile you've desired uh, to have for that particular coffee. Mm-hmm. You'll then open the drop door and discharge the coffee into the cooling tray. Um, most roasting machines have a downdraft air cooler that just pulls room temp air down through the bean mass and exhausts the smoke and heat outside. Uh, and then you basically have roasted coffee. The process itself, it doesn't sound, I think, so complicated when you go through it step by step, but it's definitely nuanced during the process, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're taking a, a green coffee, which has around 300 volatile aromatic compounds, a certain level of, you know, oligosaccharide content like sucrose, monosaccharide content like glucose, fructose, etc., cetera, uh, proteins and amino acids, lipids, uh, chlorogenic acids, alphetic acids, and all that. And we're going to take them through a series of really complex chemical reactions. Uh, the Maillard reaction alone produces about 600 volatile aromatic compounds, as well as uh, generates high molecular weight browning compounds called melanoidins. Okay. And then as we go further, we go through sugar caramelization where we're producing uh, you know, chemical compounds like diacetyl. We're breaking down the oligosaccharides of sucrose into simple sugars or monosaccharides, as well as producing alphatic acids like acetic acid, lactic acid, formic, and glycolic, uh, just to name a few. Organic acid changes are happening as, you know, chlorogenic acid breaks down and forms kenic and cathetic acids. Citric acid breaks down and forms citratonic. Malic breaks down and forms maloic. So you've got this really complex chemical cocktail occurring during the entire process. And based on how we control our roasting profile and our end temperature, we control what uh, flavor compounds we create at the end. Uh, so, yeah, while it does sound like a, a relatively simple process, and it is kind of at the surface, there's a lot of nuance going on underneath. Right. That's sort of the beauty of roasting, I feel like. It's the, I, I don't know, it's like the fishing of coffee, where, you know, like fishing can be like a very straightforward you know, sit on your boat, throw your line in the water, but like it's nuanced too, where there's like this, uh, it's a lot more nuanced than fishing. Maybe (laughs) in fact, maybe that's a horrible comparison. Unlike fishing, I would also recommend not drinking beer while roasting um, (laughs) (laughs) while operating operating heavy equipment in general. uh, Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I don't think it's like fishing at all. So uh, now that that I've really uh, delved into that, Rob, everybody kind of has their principles going into roasting. Uh, you've roasted a ton of mm-hmm. coffee. Uh, we, t- we talked about that earlier. What are your, your core principles? And uh, how does it relate to uh, the book you wrote on modulating the flavor profile of coffee, One Roaster's Manifesto? Right on. So core principles for me are going to be a little bit different uh, because at a certain level, I'm a pragmatist. 
Um, one of the things that I frequently tell people that is a little bit of a surprise to them is because as a consultant, everybody typically wants to make sure that you're quite pleased with the product that they're producing. Mm-hmm. And I tell them that this is a little bit backwards and that the honest truth is they really shouldn't care what I think about their coffee. Um, my goal as a consultant is not to spread my preference for coffee, but to help people understand how to control their beans and their equipment to find their preference and their customer's preference. So, I see. Okay. You know, for me at the end of the day, the most important thing is that you as the person who is producing this product that in some way reflects them as a person and their preferences and the preferences of the customer base that they're going after. For me, the most important thing is, do you like your coffee? And then do your customers like your coffee? Have you found a group of people that you jive with and whose preferences to a certain extent align to your own? Or are you offering a product range that's wide enough to meet people where they're at and to have a successful business and to enjoy what you're doing and to find uh, joy in the creative process of buying coffee, choosing a roast profile and all that sort of thing. So um, usually, and, and this is in part why in the book modulating, I didn't include any roast profiles in there, mm-hmm. um, which has caused a lot of frustration on people's part. Like, what's your baseline? What was your baseline? You know, how would you roast this coffee? And, and I want to be really cautious not to create sameness in our industry Uh, Our industry is varied, and I think that's a lovely part about our industry and how it exists, is that there there can be all these different expressions of the same coffee even, uh, where you might have the same coffee from the same producer from two different roasteries, and you may not be able to tell that it's the same coffee at all. I love that. That's great. And so my first principle is is make sure that you're pleased with what you're doing and make sure that your customers are pleased with what, what you're doing. And then my second core principle is that all of it really relies on there being sustainability and equitability uh, within our industry. Hmm. And so making sure that your company is set up in such a way that you are taking care of the producers and you're taking care of the people that work with you and for you so that everyone is, is able to live a decent life, including the producers, especially I've, I've worked with uh, some friends in different producing countries for a long time. And for me, it's a very important detail to talk about because even though specialty coffee has helped us and we've come a little bit of a decent way from where we were. Um, a lot of times farmers are still being paid less than the actual cost of production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's unacceptable. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. Making sure that you're working with either importers that kind of jive with your, you know, your, your particular beliefs on coffee producers and how they should be treated or, you know, finding ways to work more directly with coffee farmers or find ways to add value beyond just what you're paying for the, the coffee price. Um, but in such a way that honors their autonomy as, as people, um, you know, one of our ways that we do it here at NOS is we not only pay a higher price per pound for coffee, but we also then just ask them what they need and what they want because mm-hmm. nobody has a better idea of what a farmer needs or wants than the farmer themselves. Oftentimes, you know, sometimes the way that that dovetails with the modulating book is, is a little bit more abstract, but. You know, as I mentioned, part of the reason that we that, that I didn't put any profiles down was because I didn't want to unduly influence anyone or have someone, especially because, you know, thermocouple probes are always going to read differently. Different roasting machines function differently. And so what mm-hmm. may work for me on my roaster uh, may not work for someone else on their roaster. So, yeah, just really wanting to help people take control of the flavors that they're producing and make sure that they're able to craft the coffee in a way that works for them. Right on, Rob. 
Well, hey, thanks for sitting down with us and talking us through your perspectives on roasting and, and really going step by step for us, breaking mm-hmm. it down elementary style. Um, we love to ask our guests if they like to share any resources with our listeners they, they find valuable. Um, like, so maybe if there are books or websites or whatever that were valuable to you while you were learning uh, all that you've learned, uh, feel free to share those now. So there's a lot more information out than there was back when I started, which is fantastic. Um, so, you know, so far as old school books, would highly recommend looking at Ilian Vivaldi's Espresso, The Science of Quality. Uh, look at Michael Sivit's book, Coffee Technology. Um, you know, Scott Rayo's got a book out on roasting that has some awesome stuff in it. Uh, Joe Morocco has uh, a great series with Mill City Roasters where he talks about roasting. Highly recommend uh, material that Joe's cranking out as well. Um, I mean, there's just so much. And as a roaster, what I would really, really recommend is that you also keep up and keep in touch with what's happening in the barista world in terms of how things are changing, how brilliant extraction is changing. So, mm. you know, looking at stuff that's going on with barista hustle down in Australia, um, look at some of the, the brewing and extraction books that are coming out from the BGA. Um, you know, water quality is also incredibly important. So looking at you know, Christopher and Maxwell's book, uh, Water for Coffee, is is absolutely, I think, critical as well, kind of understanding that. Uh, YouTube has a ton of different things uh, up and available as well now. Uh, so looking at YouTube, like the Nordic Roaster Forum, there's always a lot of great information coming out there and a lot of uh, lectures that have been filmed. Um, so, you know, would highly recommend that. I mean, there's just stuff all over the place. Oh, so. yeah. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for your time and uh, for, for giving us your, your insight. Yeah, my pleasure. We have many people join us on the show to talk about coffee. Rob Hughes is one of those who does consulting for a living, yet he agreed to be on the show to talk freely about his experiences in roasting, which we cannot be more thankful for. Remember, links to Rob's website and other references to this episode can be found in the show notes. You can always check us out on our website too and ask us any questions you have at thecoffeepodcast.org. The Coffee Podcast is produced by me, Jesse Hartman. Music is by Michael Parallax. You can find his music at michaelparallax.com. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, and until next time, happy brewing.